This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for joining us. Today I'll be joined with Don West, criminal defense attorney and National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and Steve Moses. He's a firearms instructor and a CCW Safe contributor. This will be part two of our conversation about the Byron David Smith case. So if you haven't heard our part one, I encourage you to go back and take a listen to that. It sets the precedent for what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, if you don't care to or you just want a refresher, uh, here's what the Byron David Smith case was all about. Uh, Byron David Smith lived alone in Little Falls, Minnesota, in a, a house that his father had built. He had a long, distinguished career in the Air Force. Uh, he worked for the State Department. He was a respected part of the community. He had been the victim of a number of break-ins over the last several months leading up to Thanksgiving Day. And on Thanksgiving Day, Uh, He noticed some teens from the neighborhood casing his house through video camera security system that he had set up. Instead of calling 911 or shouting out to the kids to leave, he went down to his basement where he was armed with two firearms and he had a table set up with snacks and water and a novel to read and he had an audio recorder that he set to play that recorded the entire incident that follows. And what happened is the teenagers broke in. First it was uh, the young man, and he wandered around the house for a while, eventually came down the stairs. Smith shot him, disabled him, and then when this teenager was lying on the floor of his basement, incapacitated, Smith gave him a finishing shot wrapped him in a tarp and dragged him to the corner of his basement. The other teenager, a young woman who was now concerned that her cousin had not come out of the house, she entered, wanders around a little bit, makes it to the door, descends the stairs into the basement, and in a similar capacity, Smith shoots her, disables her, and then, uh, quote-unquote, finishes her off while she is lying incapacitated on his basement floor. He wraps her in a tarp, drives her into a corner. Then he fails to dial 911. The next day, he calls his neighbor. He says he's solved the problems of the break-ins in the neighborhood and asks for advice on a criminal defense attorney. The neighbor suspects something awful's happened. He calls 911. Sheriff deputies come, inspect it. Smith's Arrested, he's charged with second-degree murder. The case goes before a grand jury. Once more of the evidence comes out, the grand jury suggests first-degree murder. Ultimately, he goes to trial. He's convicted of first-degree murder, and the jury took only three hours to render. It's a case that tests the limits of the Castle Doctrine. We talked about that in our last podcast. But today we're going to get a little bit more philosophical about um, what's in the the heart of a home defender. We're going to talk about the difference between a reasonable belief 
and a reasonable fear. And, and we're going to talk about the difference between a reasonable fear and irrational fear when it comes to home defense. Uh, our friend Steve Moses, he's going to share with us um, an experience that he had uh, as a armed defender a long time ago before he had the training that he has now. Uh, I'm excited to share this episode with you, so I hope you guys listen through to the end. Uh, again, here's part two of my conversation with Don West and Steve Moses about the Byron David Smith case. So let's talk about a couple of things that go beyond the um, the horrific things that make this an extreme case. And the first is... Let's talk about his decision not to dial 911 when he saw that there were teenagers casing his his house. Because if I think the fact that he didn't dial 911 played to the prosecution's favor in their suggestion that he wanted the teens to break into his house. Right, Stephen, when you're listening to the interrogation, he acknowledged that he saw them uh, poking around the house before they broke in, right? Uh, yes. Uh, I don't know. You know, my thought more so was he was he was very frightened. Uh, he saw that uh, about to happen. He was convinced that the legal system uh, would really not have any impact on what these kids were doing. As a matter of fact, perhaps even make it worse for him, and that simply uh, this was an opportunity to go ahead and uh, deal with this problem uh, once and once and for all. And I think he thought he might be justified in dealing with them, uh, very much based upon the Castle Doctrine, as you and uh, Don discussed. Let's talk about that for a second, too. Like He didn't trust the legal system, and, and I uh, see that a lot but from a guy who's engaged in uh litigation as a consultant both civilly and criminally it almost goes back down to your point there's there's right and there's wrong and there's legal and there's illegal and after a self-defense shooting it doesn't matter whether you trust law enforcement or not or the criminal justice system or not you're in it now and one thing i it, while I was researching this, he claimed to have been broken into uh, dozens of times. He only reported one of them when it was a severe case where he had lost lots of valuables and sentimental things. Uh, so for some of the other things I've read from his friends or relatives that uh, said that he had this building anxiety and that he was feeling victimized, I believe that he was broken into multiple times. But... Uh, from a litigation consultant's perspective, I feel like there's real value in making sure you report them. Whether or not you believe the law enforcement's going to do anything or not, that reporting it puts it on the record. Uh, and it, that could have weighed in his favor instead of it, we had to take his word for it. And then whether or not he felt that law enforcement was going to help him in this particular instance having reported the break-in before when you had the opportunity you have this potentially deadly encounter would surely go a long way uh 
that demonstrating his justification. Don, does that check your boxes you know, as a lawyer? Yeah, and you know, most people think of a self-defense scenario as being the moment surrounding the when the trigger is pulled, the seconds before and perhaps the seconds after. But what I've learned trying these cases and what I think we all should appreciate is that the time is dramatically expanded when the prosecutor is preparing a case, and frankly, when the defense investigates and presents a case, the moments that could extend to weeks or months or years before, uh, the background, the training of the individuals, prior encounters, all of that becomes relevant. Of course, the moment and the exact circumstances under which the decision to use deadly force will be carefully scrutinized. But then what happens afterwards is also part of the overall, it's called the totality of the circumstances, just the, the whole thing, you know, it's the whole enchilada. It's not just that moment. How you act immediately after, whether you go on social media and brag about it, whether there's evidence, and we've talked about this before, but it certainly helps to review the kind of weapon you use, the way that you use it, bumper stickers, uh, your attitude, how you interact with the police, what you say, when you say it, your level of emotional agitation, your whether or not you cooperate. And by cooperating, I don't mean that you waive your Fifth Amendment right not to make a statement, uh, but whether you are seen as cooperative, even if you ask for an opportunity to consult with counsel before you continue to cooperate. All of that factors in in establishing the totality of the circumstances, which is another way of saying whether the conduct of the defender is reasonable. You know, unless you actually say it, the prosecutor is pretty well uh, obligated to piece your mental state together by circumstantial evidence, establishing the intent and the mindset and such that probably will be the single most important fact for the jury to determine in the case. Self-defense cases are pretty clear in that you can't claim self-defense unless you claim you were attacked and that you had to defend yourself. You're the guy that was involved. There's someone injured or dead. And then it's really just a question of piecing together what was happening at the moment. What you intended to do was your violent response lawful and justified, or was it out of anger, panic, revenge, those sorts of things. And the, the big picture is the one that prosecutors will turn to to try to answer those questions. Sure, and that's what the sheriff said. It, it's about what happens before and after a threat to you or your home occurs. And, and choosing not to report that he was being broken into is something that happened before it. Uh, and and it yes, and he, he did about everything wrong you could do wrong in some respects. Yeah, the, the comments that were made during the incident itself, the clear statement that he was shooting, um, making his final shots to, to kill them when they were obviously incapacitated, 
his failure to respond by contacting the police immediately, holding the bodies, and then coming up with this explanation that he knew they were dead and he didn't want to inconvenience anyone over Thanksgiving. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that make people think he was crazy, uh, and he may very well have been emotionally or mentally unstable, but he wasn't legally crazy. The standard for legal insanity is extraordinary. You can be pretty wacky and not uh, legally insane. So, yeah. So, so after the after the failure to call nine one one, here's something I'd like to talk about, and we may encounter a little debate on this. Is you know, Steve, you mentioned earlier that he could have called out to the house to make sure they knew he was there. He could have let them know that he was armed and prepared to defend himself to ward them off. We had that conversation with uh, your friend Tatiana Whitlock when we talked about the Melinda Herman case. And you guys had a slight difference of opinion about how to handle it if somebody is threatening and at your front door, should you acknowledge them or pretend that you're not home? Uh, Just walk me through your thoughts about either warning off someone that you feel is a threat outside your house or if they've even gotten in the house and you're armed and prepared to defend yourself using verbal commands to ward them off inside the house? Uh, I'm always probably going to be an advocate of giving them verbal warnings if the circumstances permit that. Uh, to talk to you on this point, uh, I believe much of what you said is if you have kind of a, uh, a timid voice or you do so in such a manner that it might encourage someone to go ahead and, you know, uh, make entry anyway. I mean, I think that's certainly valid. Uh, That's something for the most part, though, that people can verbally control, which is just, I've called, actually can just be, I've called the police. Uh, She also made a very good point about not having her children or, you know, recommending that children don't answer the door when the parents are there. And I've, I've, I, I think that's I think that's 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 valid. I mean, I re- I understand exactly what she's saying about. But since we're directing this mostly at uh, concealed carriers or armed homeowners, I think for the most part, if you've got the capability of having uh, a firearm and being able to use it, being able to communicate to the people that hey, there's, you're not coming in here. You need to go away. If they continue to try to get in there, saying I'm calling 911 right now. Or if you get yourself in a house into an ensconced position like we talked, again, I'm a big advocate of going ahead and letting them know, I'm armed, I've called 911, you need to leave now. I think that is probably the preferred way to go. Now, there's always going to be some sort of, uh, you know, psychopath that they don't care. And you know what, all you're doing is kind of alerting them to exactly where you are. And I understand that. Uh, one, you still have a tactical advantage if you're set up properly, and two, the majority of persons that break into homes, just like uh, this pair right here, uh, they have no intent of, you know, going in there and, and rushing to their death. So that's kind of my stance on it. Yeah. So, Don, that's an interesting distinction I wanted to make. There's a difference between a burglar who goes to a house thinking it's unoccupied and someone who's craven enough to smash into a house where they know that there are people there, right? I mean, that, that's a different crime. A home invasion and a burglary are different crimes, aren't they? 
Yeah, you know, burglary is a typically a trespass coupled with an intent to commit another crime. In the typical home burglary, the intent is to commit the crime of theft, not the crime of robbery. Robbery is an assault against an individual with the purpose of taking their property. So a robbery is a face-to-face -face violent act against another person. You, so in that sense, you can't rob a house. You hear that expression that the house was robbed. Well, it's not a robbery unless there were people inside. The people may have been robbed. There may have been a home invasion robbery in that sense. But if people aren't involved, it's a burglary. And in my experience uh, as a criminal defense lawyer and having handled lots and lots of burglaries and robberies over the years as a public defender or if a court has appointed me uh, kind of as a pro bono or public service aspect to represent somebody, you get a pretty good sense that burglars are typically different than robbers from a personality standpoint. Often burglar, burglars are looking to avoid any confrontation with people. They're there to steal something. They may have a drug problem. They may have other issues. But they don't thrive or get off on the confrontation part, whereas it seems though robbers are, are different. They actually get excited by the confrontation. There's also the kind of home invasion robbery where people are going in because they think there's money and valuables and others, and they're going to just take it from who, who's ever there. A lot of the home invasion robberies, though, are drug houses or where they think there are drugs and money stashed, criminals robbing criminals a lot of times. You know, uh, I just did want to point out that a lot of burglars will actually go to some lengths to try to avoid going inside a house if they have reason to believe that someone's there. So it's not uncommon for them to go up to the door and knock on it or ring the doorbell two or three times waiting for someone to come to the house, to, to the door before they go in the house. And if they someone comes to the door, they realize somebody's there, there'll be an excuse made, you know, why they're there, but then they'll just leave and go try to find somewhere else. Yeah, and I, I brought up that distinction, Don, because I think we can agree that a, a a burglar is in general a less of a threat than a home invasion robber. And well, le so less of a less of a threat in that I don't think they go they start with the expectation of a confrontation. Doesn't mean if they're if they're surprised inside that they wouldn't be violent. Uh, the assumption is that they would be, I think, but right. that person going into the house isn't looking for the confrontation. Agreed. I and, and so what I'm getting for is tactically, because uh, Steve acknowledged that if someone's a, a real psychopath and there to do you harm and you shout out at them, you may be giving away your position, for example. But I think there's some clues that the armed defender could have in that situation if there's reason to believe that this person doesn't think anyone's home you can decide whether giving away your position is worthwhile if it's more likely revealing yourself will cause them to flee 
as opposed to if there's every sign that somebody's home and they've come in anywhere, you know you're dealing with a much more aggressive threat and you can behave accordingly. Sean, well, uh, to your point, uh, also, if you are have taken that position in your house and you said, I'm armed, you need to leave now, and then they continue to come in, uh, basically they've already given you reason to think that uh, they're willing to encounter, you know, accost me, as opposed to just waiting there and then someone comes in the room and that's the first time that you see them, they see you, and you have to, at that particular point, decide is this person a an imminent threat to me right now. So I think it also gives you a little bit of a, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and call it a tactical advantage. Right, so if, you, if you've threatened that you'll shoot them if they don't leave and they stick around, then they've got a different intent in mind and they're a, a, a bigger threat to you. They likely have a different intent and I think it definitely gives more justification to why I was concerned when I told this person, you need to leave, you need to leave now, or you will be shot, and uh, they disregard that. So what I'd like to talk about now is something that comes up a lot, and well, let's talk about emotions and self-defense, because what we need to make the case and different statutes say this differently, and, and I've seen some statutes that is a reasonable fear of imminent death or great bodily harm. There's other statutes that say there's a reasonable belief of imminent death or great bodily harm. Uh, fear in an encounter like this is going to exist, and I think fear of imminent harm justifies a shooting under the right conditions but anger and spite don those are elements of murder right and i i i feel that in any time that you're attacked there's going to be some measure of fear that fear may be reasonable or not and I think there's going to be some measure of anger and spite, the fact that you've been put in this position of, of fearing for your life. And those emotions run together. And they I don't think they exist mutually exclusively, uh, that there's a confluence of this. And we've seen what might have been perfectly justifiable self-defense shootings turn into murder when there's a final shot fired at somebody who's retreated or uh, they've gone just a little too far or they say something out loud that would uh, allow a, uh, a witness to suspect that there's anger in their heart. Um, oh, sure. And you hear prosecutors try to direct the jury like that. You hear a prosecutor make a statement, something like, he didn't shoot him because he had to. He shot him because he wanted to. Yeah. And, and, and with the idea that legal deadly force is only justified in the face of an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death, you also hear that as said as a threat of imminent great bodily harm or death. But the test, of course, is are you facing a threat of great bodily harm or death right now? 
that you genuinely, sincerely, and reasonably believe that you will be seriously injured or killed if you don't do something right now to prevent that by responding with that kind of force. If you're not so worried that you're going to get seriously harmed or killed, but you're really, really pissed, that's not lawful self-defense. If the person is approaching you from 400 feet away and you are irrationally panicking and you respond to that panic, that irrational fear that you're going to be facing that threat when the person isn't in fact a threat at that point, then you haven't acted in lawful self-defense either. And then, of course, the revenge idea is the, the shot, the, the final shot, the ending shot, the one that is not in any way legally justified because there's no longer a threat, but just because you are so angry or scared or what have you, you decide to finish it off, so to speak. Steve, you mentioned when you said you listened to the recording that Smith made of the actual shootings that you can sense the fear in his, just in his breathing, in fact, right? You, you, you can, you can you, as the steps get closer to the basement, he starts breathing faster. You, you can't hear it, but you, you can almost imagine his heart pounding as the door opens up. But I, I bring this up because I think sometimes people mistake fear uh, for reasonable fear or you say don that the fear has to be of imminent harm or death but imminent in your definition means right now it doesn't mean necessarily even 30 seconds from now i just don't like i don't i don't like the term reasonable fear it's one that's used commonly and there may very well be jury instructions and statutes that use that combination of word reasonable fear but I think it's much easier and clearer if you leave the word fear out because fear is what is that heightened emotion that you have to figure out is it rational or irrational is it based upon reasonable circumstances I I think that it's a much better working position to use reasonable belief and and that is if you believe based upon the circumstances that you are facing that you are imminently likely to be seriously injured or death then you satisfy that reasonable belief or that reasonable fear because um, you know how people say I was afraid he was going to hit me that's that throws fear in there. But what they're really saying, I think, before they can respond is, I believed he was going to hit me. Because the, the fear, I think, allows too much leeway, and it's a bit distracting. So even though it's a common, a common way to describe the predicate for the use of uh, the use of force, I don't think it's all that helpful and should probably be avoided or clarified whenever possible. So for our listeners, for CCW SAFE members, it's the reasonable belief that harm or death is imminent that's to be acted upon, and fear is an element completely exclusive from that. 
Well, I, I'm not going to say exclusive because it's like you said before, all this stuff is probably happening at once. If you reasonably, reasonably believe someone's about to shoot you or hit you, you're going to be scared as hell too because that's the basis of your fear, but the basis of the fear is the reasonable belief based upon all of the circumstances that it's going to happen. And if you act out of that belief that you have, then you have acted consistent with the rules of use of force. If you are panicking and you react out of that irrational fear, then you've gone, you've stepped over the line. So you can be afraid, you can be a little bit angry, um, but if you reasonably believe, and that is subjectively, if you subjectively believe based upon all those circumstances that this person uh, intends to harm you and is capable of doing it, then you have the right to defend yourself. It also has to be objectively reasonable, and that's for the jury to decide whether under the reasonable person standard it all fits together. So. That's why I think it's more useful for our conversations to focus on reasonable belief rather than reasonable fear, but the way we use them means the same thing. Steve, I want to ask you, you, in your time being involved with law enforcement, used to help serve high-risk warrants on individuals that were in houses and assumed to be armed? Yes, sir. Uh, That's a scary proposition, right? It, yes, it is. How do, so I want to ask you, when we're talking about managing fear in a self-defense situation or a life-and-death situation where people are armed or assumed to be armed, how do you balance uh, your, your fear with what you believe is happening and uh, how, does your, uh, how do your better angels persevere in those situations? Uh, most... most <laughs> I think the best answer I could be is uh, you don't ignore it because it's impossible to ignore. You just acknowledge it. Uh, you accept the fact that other people have experienced the same uh, feeling that you're feeling right now in situations that were far worse than what you're facing then. You accept the fact that they were able to go ahead and physically take actions and make good decisions in spite of feeling like that, and then just saying, I can do it too. So in the particular instances that I was describing when we were on the, uh, and I was on the team and we were doing those, is I'm with anywhere from three to six other officers. And those guys, uh, it doesn't matter if it's a new officer, uh, that's my brother, and I'm, I'm not going to let my brother down. And every one of those other persons on that team feels the same way. And so just that, hey, I accepted this job, I'm going to finish this job, and I'm not going to let any of these people down, is I simply just you know, force myself to, to act. Now, one of the things that I've experienced, and it may just may be me, and it, when I say I've experienced it, it may not happen the same, uh, is that when things actually start to happen, uh, in many instances, uh, fear becomes less of a problem. And then I'm focused on the problem. I'm focused on dealing with the problem. I'm trying to take in all this information, make sure I process it correctly and uh, respond correctly, and I don't make any errors, which that's a lot going on. 
But basically, that's kind of, you know, my personal experience. Now, in regard to actually having been a, uh, a person that was inside an apartment, actually, as opposed to a home, and having a burglar break in uh, at 3 a.m. in the morning, uh, I've been more or less on the same, more or less in the same shoes as, uh, as Byron Smith. And at that particular time, it's pretty scary because you don't have enough information. You can't see what's going on. You don't know what you're facing. Uh, you can be injured or killed. And, you know, and in my particular case, uh, the same could be true for my wife. And so I knew that I wanted to, and I was untrained, uh, I knew that I wanted anything that took place within that apartment took place outside of the bedroom in which my wife was in. And so to that end, you know, I went ahead and came into the uh, living area and accosted the, uh, the, the intruder. So I have sympathy for Mr. Smith when he is down there in that basement, armed or otherwise, and he can hear these sounds taking place above him, uh, persons walking around, uh, the doorknob being jostled, and then you can even hear, and it's creepy, is you can hear that person start coming down the steps, and I'm assuming that he's in a position that as they are coming down the steps, he cannot yet see them. And he is waiting there, you know, I, I I'm not sure what his motive is at that point, uh, although I suspect I know, in that when he sees the lower part of their body, you know, appear in his uh, in his view, uh, that's when he chose to engage. And so uh, up to that point, if we're just going to talk about from the point that the persons were in the room and then coming down the stairs, I mean, I think his fear was was super legit and likewise or i'll just say belief that something grievous could happen would take place was you know very much legit and i understand that uh however once you know the initial shot was fired in both cases uh there was no cause whatsoever for taking the actions that he took when i've been involved in self-defense cases before one of the things that's fascinated me is that i feel that what we're asking the jury to do is impossible what we're asking them to do is to look into the heart of the defender and decide what was happening there <clears throat> and uh, no one can ever know and then there's evidence that uh the witness evidence things that are done before and after that can help us look at their mindset or, or help us determine what might have been in their heart whether that was hate and anger and spite or a genuine fear and belief that they were in danger uh, you said to me steve that when things go down that the, the fear sort of leaves and you just take care of business and that there's all these moments before and after where there's room for that emotion again and i know a lot of these things go down quickly but is there is there time for you as and is this something you can train in to where you can stop and actually like take a survey of yourself of what's in your heart right now what do you feel because i feel like some of the defenders we looked at they get so flooded with anger and rage about what's happened to them they, they lose control is, is there some mindfulness that as 
armed defenders and concealed carriers, we can start working into our training regimen that, that is a check on what do we actually feel in our heart and what's driving our actions at this moment? Uh, absolutely. Now, first thing I want to go ahead and just you know make clear is that what I have experienced in the past does not necessarily mean I would experience the same thing in the future. It's just that I'd made the decision you know, a long time ago that when action was necessary, uh, go ahead and take action. I've been fortunate in being able to force myself to actually do that in those situations. In uh, direct response to your question, yes, uh, concealed carriers, armed homeowners that are really serious about this, they can go out there and they can train with experienced defensive firearm instructors. There's quite a few out, of the, out, out there that can explain to them, okay, this is what the event may look like. Yours probably won't look exactly like this. This is what may take place. Yours might not indeed be exactly like this, but so you have some understanding of what happens in an encounter such as this. And then understand that, okay, there are certain laws that you must abide by, uh, not only because they are, you know, they're, they're civilly and criminally required, but it's, it's, it's the morally correct thing to do. You need to understand that you will likely be under stress, you are likely, you know, to be in, in, in significant fear, and that is natural. That is your body's way of preparing you for combat or flight, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. And then just understand that just being fearful in itself is not going to change the outcome. What's going to change the outcome is either actions that you take or the other person takes. And the only person's actions that you can really control up to a certain point are going to be the ones that you take. So if you're willing to go out there and invest in training, uh, get knowledge, listen to podcasts such as this, uh, learn skills with uh, defensive weapons, learn tactics, which is how do I, you know, basically, I hate to use this word term manipulate, but I'm going to anyways, okay, how do I manipulate such things as time and distance and cover and concealment and angles and then just the ability to work with people, that really puts me in a stronger position. And if I'm in my own home, I know my home, I know where everything is, uh, the chances are that that person that's breaking into my home right now does not and basically understand that Many thousands of people have survived encounters such as this, and there's no reason that you can't do it too. Byron Smith, after he'd shot these teenagers, moved their bodies. Can we agree that it's uh, practically never a good idea to touch the bodies unless you're trying to somehow render help to somebody who's dying? That's the only situation I can think of where you might have some justifiable reason for doing anything that might be construed as disturbing the scene, tampering with evidence, altering what the police will see when they arrive. So not only did he do that uh, by virtue of moving the bodies, but the act of moving the bodies in the manner in which he did it and what 
I think the police and the prosecutors would claim the reasons why he did it are all against him. There's no aspect of what he did that I think supports any claim of self-defense. In fact, it defeats any claim of self-defense that he had up to that point. And um, he further complicated his situation by not just moving the bodies, but then failing to immediately contact law enforcement to explain that he'd been in a shooting incident when intruders broke into his home and he had to uh, defend himself. You know, I have to feel that there was a point in time where exactly it was, whether it was what was the final straw, but I think that that Byron David Smith just kind of lost it at one point. I don't know where that was. It may have been well before these kids came into his house, well before he fired the first shot, but certainly at some point it's clear that he was no longer operating in the world that the rest of us live in when he felt that it was up to him to exterminate the the vermin that were plaguing his home. And he set about to do that. He did it successfully. In many ways, he, you, you might say he did it proudly, and then he did everything wrong after that, perhaps right in his mind to justify and explain what he did, but certainly wrong in any context of any justifiable use of force. We talked about reviewing this case. It's something we've talked about before. I remember when I published articles on this years ago, one CCW Safe member wrote back, like, why are we even talking about this case? It's very clearly murder. There's no self-defense elements here. Just the same, we thought there was a lot that was interesting to talk to. Tell me, Don, what, after this conversation we've had, what's the real value of re-exploring this case that, that, that's so clearly uh, a deranged guy who went too far? What are we getting out of this? Don, do you want to address that first, or would you like me to? You talking to me? If you got something top of you, mind, Steve, why don't you, you tell you, me? You talking, you talking to me? I don't see anyone else here. Oh, come on, guys. That was a reference to the Robert De Niro movie. That's why I said Driver. I don't see anyone else here. <laughs> I don't see anyone else here. You must be talking to me. <laughs> well done. Uh, no, no, no. Steve, you're on. In fact, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the event that you experienced because I think there are some, some lines that David... Uh, Byron David Smith crossed that you didn't, even though there were probably several aspects of your own experience where you could have made a different decision and yet be uh, be protected by the law. Well, sure. And you also and you also mentioned, Steve, that this happened before you had training, and we all know that you're very, very well trained now. So we're talking about... Uh, I appreciate long, that. It happened in 1980, ago. so if that kind of gives some perspective... At which and time, if that happens to you again, you you do things differently. I know. Oh, I I do things absolutely differently. Uh, and again, uh, that was the actual the impetus for me to seek out training, uh, so that something like that ever happened again, I would be so much better prepared because I felt like I made uh, several tactical errors 
that could have not turned out well for me, and I definitely didn't want to repeat that. In regard to the incident itself, it took place about 3 o'clock in the morning, one-bedroom apartment. Interestingly enough, uh, my wife and I had arrived late that night, and they had assigned parking. Well, I was unable to park in my parking place because we got there late. Someone else had, and so we parked someplace else. And whether or not, just like Mr. Smith said, uh, that might have been the reason that the uh, burglar thought that our apartment was unoccupied. I don't know, but I was like going, huh, that's it's kind of interesting. Anyway, a person broke in about 3 o'clock in the morning. They used a screwdriver to just pry the door open. Uh, my wife heard me. She woke me up. Uh, I went and grabbed a, a 357 revolver. Actually, what I did was I went and I put my back against the bedroom door so no one could come in, and I told her to please bring me that revolver. And then when she did, I made the decision that uh, nothing's going to go down in here with, with her present. So I opened the door and the apartment was completely black, did not have a flashlight. I could not see anything. I kind of stood there completely backlit and silhouetted when the burglar, his name was uh, Gary Tiger, uh, when Tiger stepped across a window and was momentarily backlit. Pointed my revolver at him, told him to hit the ground, shouted at him, he hit the ground. I went and turned a lamp on, and at that point, uh, he, in my opinion, had, uh, in all effects, surrendered and was no longer a threat. I uh, made the decision that I was not going to shoot him until I uh, was just forced to. Uh, he stood up. I made him stand with his back to the front door. Uh, my wife called the police. Uh, he became bolder and bolder, and at one point, uh, I was convinced that, indeed, I was going to have to shoot him. I was actually made the decision to try to avoid that or shoot him low in his torso because I really didn't understand uh, how a uh, 357 Magnum revolver hollow point round going at high speed worked, and I was afraid it would go straight through him into an apartment into someone else's bedroom. Uh, fortunately, the police arrived. They knocked on the very door that he was standing behind. I just kept him pinned in place, told him to go around, came over there, held my gun on him, opened the patio door, and then the police came in and uh, took him in custody. And so there was at no point really an opportunity for me to take a shot at him. I didn't know exactly where he was. Uh, when he was momentarily silhouetted, I chose not to take that shot for fear of A, missing, and B, not really knowing who that was. Uh, and then when he did you know, surrender, uh, then I'm like, okay, I'm not justified. Uh, interesting enough, the police officers asked me, why didn't you just go ahead and shoot him? Because, you know, that was just much more an accepted practice back then. And, you know, my response was, well, by the time that I could, uh, he had given up, and I just, you know, justified or not, I just didn't want to live with that for the, uh, for the remainder of my life. In regard to uh, lessons learned for concealed carriers who would say, well, I would never do any of these particular things, 
uh, one of the things I think that's very important is to at least put yourself in his place and imagine how you might feel if your house or apartment or whatever that you're living in has been broken in not just once, but maybe maybe repeatedly. Uh, How frustrated are you with the fact that in many instances, uh, people that are actually caught during this, uh, they never serve any real time? Uh, matter of fact, uh, they may be uh, they may come back and come after you, you and you and your family, uh, you know. And these are all things to think about that. And so the thing is, if you have had a you know a pattern of these things happening, and you've got these feelings, and then you're put in a situation much like Mr. Smith was in, uh, you're going to have to think about what would my impulses be during this situation. And what happens if I act upon those impulses? And in many instances, in many of the cases that I've discussed with you and Don, uh, it almost appears to me that people acted impulsively. You know, other people afterwards like going, well, I don't understand. I would have never done that. Well, two things. One is you may not be experiencing the same emotions and feelings that that person was. And then secondly we have a whole slew of new concealed carriers and armed homeowners that are just now, you know, getting into this. And they're not nearly as uh, familiar with the laws of self-defense, use of force, etc. that many of these, I think there's 8 million new gun owners was the last, I mean, probably within the last 24 months. And so I think that that's information that they may not be aware of. They may very well not be fully familiar with what's involved in the Castle Doctrine, what they can and they can't do. And so to me, not only is there something of value for concealed carriers, but there's also something of value for people that they may know that may not be as uh, up to speed and knowledgeable as they are. So to me, I think this is why this was a very uh, a very valuable podcast. And Steve, I want to follow up on something you said there. You actually, because as I heard you describe the circumstances of that break-in, I felt from a legal perspective uh, at almost any time, if you had shot that guy, you probably would not have faced charges for it, even if morally it was improper because he had surrendered. And to the point where when you reinforce that with this idea that the cops were like, hey, how come he didn't shoot that guy? Um, They certainly would have understood. But for all the the new gun owners and home defenders – I think one of the big lessons that I've learned over the several years that we've been doing this is that um, what you have in your heart that you bring to one of these self-defense situations will dictate how it turns out. You entered that situation, Steve, it sounds like to me with your first priority was not to have your wife injured or traumatized by the event and I think you felt if you can 
get through the situation without having to kill somebody that that was a good result that that was absolutely correct and so i think when we look into uh byron david smith's heart uh he was broken and traumatized and full of fear and i think he may have wanted to shoot those kids no matter what happened he went into that encounter hoping for the opportunity to shoot them and he missed every chance he had to not shoot them and it led to that result and it's an extreme case but when we look at all of the cases that we've explored i find that most of them if the shooter had had the mindset that they wanted to do everything they could to avoid the shooting they would have avoided the shooting don you think i'm off base there or, or steve if you had a thought on that no 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 i think absolutely i think you you stated that very well i think that mindset is perfect the idea that when you look for ways not to shoot someone you look for ways to avoid it to preempt it whether it's the voice commands or those things that lead up to that moment when you have no choice because we know there will be those moments when you truly have no choice and you have to take someone's life to defend your own they are remarkably rare in the scheme of things it's highly unlikely that anyone listening to this podcast will truly face that life or death moment and frankly uh, the more prepared they are to avoid those the even less likely it will be that they actually are because uh, maybe one lesson out of all of this is uh, just because you can meaning just because you can legally use deadly force doesn't necessarily mean you should if there's been anything you can do to avoid it. All right, everybody. That's our podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Uh, We've got some new explorations of old cases with fresh perspective from Steve Moses coming up in the future. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care.